So we're going to begin in, in Luke. I, I'm sorry, I can't get out of Luke 9. There's so much in there. It's 60-some verses long. It's just like the endless chapter. I, I, uh, it's, it's hard to preach chapter by chapter when there's 60 verses in a chapter. So uh, there's just so much here. And I think, well, I'll skip that. And then I think, well, you know, Luke went to the trouble to write it. Why would I skip it? Uh, the Holy Spirit must have had something there. So this is after the feeding of the 5,000 and things are settling down and they're, they're having a, a quiet night at the camp uh, before you know the next chaotic experience comes along. And we're, we're nearing the turning point. I think, I think chapter 11 is the turning point in Luke. Chapter uh, 12 is the turning point in Matthew when the, uh, and the, the leadership of Israel clearly and distinctly turns against Christ. We're not there yet, but it's coming. And, and Jesus is beginning to work His way towards Jerusalem. And you're going to see that in this chapter, but I'm not going to talk about it today. Uh, and so we're kind of at that point where Jesus is kind of, two years now, He's starting to wrap up His teaching and He wants it fixed in their minds, you know, who they're following. And He said unto them, but whom... Say ye that I am. And you, you all know this verse if you've read your Bible almost at all. In Matthew, G, Peter goes, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And Luke, you know, many years later, getting this information from others, writes down, The Christ of God. And Christ means anointed one. So you're the anointed one of God. But who is he? Is he a man that God has anointed like the prophets? Is he, a, uh, is he something else? And verse 21, he, but Jesus isn't ready to make this public yet. He's going to make it public uh, a week before his death, uh, but not yet. He's going to make a public presentation of himself as the king of Israel, but not yet. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man. Now, I wanted you to see this verse because I wanted you to see who he was talking to. He said unto them, his disciples, and he straightly charged them, you know. And, and so I want you to see this is to his disciples. And you could take this passage of Scripture that I'm talking about today and you could focus it only on those that are called to Christian work. At least till we get a couple of verses into this thing. Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Uh, this just, again, goes right over their heads. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, and this is the hard part, so you think, well, this, was, this message was to his disciples, but he does, Jesus doesn't say that. He said, if any man, and, and notice that's italicized in the King James. I, I, I know I confuse you because sometimes I italicize stuff because I want to emphasize it. But if you're reading the King James and it's italicized, it means the editors added that word. And it should be, if any will come after me. Now, there's nothing wrong with the, the what is it, anthropos in the Greek. There's nothing wrong with the phrase, if any man will come after me, because it's a generic term and it means human. All right? it, it does mean man masculine in context, but in a general sense, it means anybody. Children, adults, male, female. But in this particular case, Jesus said, at least Luke, Luke has quoted Jesus as saying, as if any, or in the way we would say it in our language, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. 
But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will find it. Now the contrasts here are pretty sharp, stark. Either I deny myself. What does that mean? You know, well, for me, it meant I had this dream of what my life was going to look like. I was going to have waterfront property on the Chesapeake Bay. I was going to have a little cabinet shop. I was going to teach school just long enough to pay off my, my businesses and my, my, my buildings. And I was going to be a cabinet maker and have uh, spend my life on the eastern shore of Maryland. I had this idea. That was my life. I don't think he's saying I have to kill myself. See? I had to deny myself the life that I had planned for myself. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Deny yourself. Bear a cross. My cross, see, is going to be different from your cross. There are going to be things you have to give up. There are also going to have to be things you do that you don't want to do. If God calls you to go and stand in a pulpit and teach, or God calls you to try to figure out how to run two computers and talk at the same time, or God calls you to move to a terrible, terrible place called Vermont and, and live here the rest of your life, you know. Or, or uh, you know, at the time that I first was saved and I first heard, uh, I always forget her name, it'll come to me in a week from now, uh, talking about how God loves me more than I ever loved myself and that I could trust His will for my life more than I could trust my own choices. That was the first time I'd ever heard that message. And it made me realize that I don't necessarily make good choices for myself, but God will always make good choices. So when, I, when you're talking about denying my will and following Him, it's surrendering all that I wanted to be to become all that He wants me to be, or at least to attempt to, you see. Now, the starkness of this comes up in the next passage. For what is a man advantage if he gained the whole world? So say I did get my waterfront. I mean, in, in, a, in a perfect imaginary world, I would have won the megabucks, which actually didn't exist at that time. And I would have been able to buy Goose Point Farm on Ken Island, and that for me would have been the whole world. But what's the advantage of that? And then I lose myself or be cast away. We know this passage. What are your dreams? Are your dreams hindering God's will in your life. That's what this passage is about. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and his Father's and the holy angels. If I grasp onto my life here in this world, I will lose my life in the next world. It's as simple as that. Salvation isn't based on choice. Salvation is working under this. Or maybe I should say it another way. Salvation is working through this. When God came into my life and broke into my life, it wasn't I wouldn't be saved until I, I accepted the fact that I would do what He wanted me to do. No. I was saved, terribly lost and hopeless. And God began to work in my life. And I began to see through my salvation that He loved me more than I loved myself. Catherine Marshall is the name of the woman. Catherine's book, Beyond Ourselves, when I read that a year after I was saved, I realized God had a plan for my life, and His plan was perfect, and I could trust His plan. And as Paul wrote, and I've changed the color so you know this isn't our passage, Philippians 3, 7, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. I mean, I had some great ideas for myself, but compared to Paul, I had no plans at all. He wanted a PhD in theology. He wanted to be the next high priest of Israel. He wanted to be the highest mucky muck in Israel could have. It's like the President of the United States. He wanted to be the best. And all those things that I worked toward my whole life, Paul said, uh, 
All those things I wanted for, I counted loss for Christ. He doubtless I call, call, I count, can't say it, sorry, all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may, the word is gain, really, not win, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness. You see, a lot of people think that by living a good life and by working hard, and some people think that by preaching or by teaching Sunday schools, or by going to church, that they're somehow going to earn enough righteousness to make themselves acceptable. Paul, of all people, would have exceeded that beyond all expectations. You know, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the cream of the crop. He was uh, the smartest one in the class and had a private tutor working on his PhD, Gamaliel. He was the best. But he realized the first time he saw Christ that all those things were nothing. They mean nothing to God compared to faith in Christ and found in him not having mine own righteousness, all those things that I think I can do which are of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's our righteousness. If you stand in the presence of God in the future, it won't be because you did anything. It won't be because you preached, you know, 500 sermons or, or, or any, anything that you could do, taught Sunday school, cleaned the church, attended church, went to the right church, went to the wrong church. None of those things will count. If you stand in the presence of God, it'll only be because you have the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way a person can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So what is the cost of following Jesus? The cost of following Jesus is this life that we are now presently living that isn't surrendered to His will must be sacrificed on a cross of your faith in Jesus Christ. We must turn our backs on our own dreams and our own plans for the future. And we must seek to do His will, even if it costs us our physical lives. Now, I, I, I always laugh when I talk about cost because my, my pastor in Memphis, George Jackson, would get on this topic frequently. It was one of his favorite rabbits. And he said, yeah, I gave up everything for Jesus. He said, I gave up my Ford and now I'm driving a Cadillac, you know. And it's almost, if you've been saved any amount of time, you realize everything you gave up was nothing. It was, as Paul said, dumb compared to what Christ brings to you. He said, yeah, yeah. You think the Gadarean demoniac, he gave up everything for Jesus. And he said, can I follow you? And Jesus said, no, you go to your home and tell everyone the things that the Lord has done for you. What did the Gadarean demoniac give up? He had to give up his tombs. That's what we give up. We give up the graveyard that we lived in in order to go back home and tell people about Jesus. That was his cross. He had to give up his graveyard. All of us did that. I lived in a graveyard too. All my friends were dead. All my family was dead. Everything I did was death. Everything was destructive. It was harmful. Even when I did good, I was doing good for the wrong reason. And when you think about that, if you're doing good for the wrong reason, that's death too. That's out of the world. And the world is not anything to do with Jesus Christ. Like the Gadaria Demoniac, we must turn our back on our dead works and live and even be willing sometimes to die. But why would you do that? Why would anyone follow Jesus? That's the question. Who is He that I should follow Him? And that's the address. See, now this is all in the context of Luke. It's all put together. So if you're laying in your bed that night after hearing this message, 
you know, from Jesus and you're wrapped up in your sleeping bag, or in their case, probably camels there, blanket islands, you don't know what they slept in. Uh, and uh, you have a chance to think about this. You'll think, you'll, you'll understand why he did this in the order that he did it. They've seen some pretty amazing things, and sure, that's fantastic. I mean, they've seen him heal the sick, sick that shouldn't be healed. He's seen them heal towns filled with sick people. I mean, he just, if there were hospitals in this day and there weren't, but he would have put, he put the hospitals right out of business, see? They'd seen him uh, feed 5,000 people. And the scripture says it's 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were there, if any were there at all. We don't know. It was really a hard place to get to. So maybe there were no women there, but my guess is there was at least women and children there. And if there were, we saw him feed 10,000 people. Well, that would be hard on the restaurant business in the area. You know, the, the boys, the disciples said, you know, why don't we send them away so they can go down and buy some food? Jesus says, feed them yourself. Feed them yourself. Wow, this man, he's weird. Then they've seen him, that night they saw him walk on water. They, they left without him. He sent them away and he wanted to get to the other side, so he just walked across the pond. You think, who, who, who is this guy that raises the dead? Who is this guy that when people are laughing at him because a little girl has died Said, you can't heal her. She's dead. And he raises her right from the dead. Now they understand and they're pretty sure. I, I, I don't want to say the word positive, but they're pretty sure he's the Messiah. But what does that mean for them? If you were a Jew in his, your day, back in his, let me get that around. If you were a Jew in his day and you went to Hebrew school and you knew what the prophecy said, you would know what the Messiah was going to do. You would know that the Messiah was going to come he was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to kick out all the bad religious people. He was going to take over uh, Israel as their king. That's the promise of the millennium. And then he's going to conquer the world and take over the world and rule the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's their Messiah. That's the last question they asked him just before he left. Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? They're talking about what we call the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the literal return of Christ. Now, there are a lot of theologians that don't believe that it'll ever happen. But Jesus wasn't one of them. All he said to the boys was, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the, God, that the Father has in His power. He didn't say, oh, you fools, you're reading the Bible wrong. There is no millennium. That's just Isaiah just got carried away with this lion and the lamb junk. Don't believe that stuff. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, I don't want you to know. Isn't that interesting? I don't want you to know. Daniel wanted to know, and, and Gabriel told him, seal up the book, the time's not yet. When you get to the end, people will begin to understand. Only then. Interesting, isn't it? So who is this man, Jesus? He's going to show them. He's not going to tell them. He's going to show them. And he goes on and he says... I tell you of the truth, there are some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the kingdom. And it came to pass, about eight days later, he took Peter, John, and James. Luke does everything backwards. Doesn't he know it's supposed to be Peter, James, and John? I mean, that just flows right through your mouth. Peter, John, and James. What, what's that about, Luke? He's a Gentile. He doesn't know. It just doesn't flow right. And went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment was white and glistening. You want to know what he looked like? Here it is. This is in Revelation chapter 1-4. I, 
I was going to try to find an artist's rendering of this, and the, uh, you, you go to Google and you say, images of uh, Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 1. And boy, I'll tell you, there's something, if you want to see how whacked out artists can get trying to paint this, I thought, you know, it'd be better off not to put any image of Jesus up on the screen. And his head, this, this is Jesus. This is Jesus now. This is actually Jesus back then, too. It was only the Jesus we picture, which we have no picture of, uh, for 33 years. The rest of the time, this is the Jesus that the world has dealt with. And his head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth. This is the Jesus we will see. All right. This is the one we will see. This is the real Jesus without the veil of flesh. This is the one that took on a human baby's form. And I believe when we look up and we see a window open in heaven and that voice says to us, come up here, I believe this is the first thing we'll see is this Jesus, you know. This is the one Daniel called in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days. Luke goes on uh, retelling the story. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. And you ask yourself, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, you got two choices. Well, you got three. Uh, if you're really a skeptical, you could say, well, they're guessing. That's a skeptical's view. Probably just some couple of guys hiking in the area, you know. Uh, not likely. Uh, it's possible they heard Jesus say, Hi, Moses. You know, hadn't spoken to you in about 20 years. Good to see you again. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming they weren't wearing name tags, but I'm pretty sure their names were mentioned somewhere along the line. And it says Elias, but it's really Elijah, the first of the two, who appeared in glory and spoke of his disease. Oh, there, there is a third choice of how they knew the name. Is that is the Holy Spirit communicated it to them. They knew who it was as soon as they saw him. Who appeared in glory. And spake of his decease. Well, that word decease is in the Greek exodus. So it is talking about his death, but it's really talking about his exit or his departure. All right. So it, this was a conference, a high conference, and uh, they're speaking about his, his departure. Speaking of his exit. But Peter and they that were with them were heavy with sleep. Well, they'd been walking all day. No, it's not nothing to do with being tired. They weren't tired. They were overwhelmed with what they were seeing. And it's not unusual. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. I'm going to skip for what Peter said for a minute. And I want you to see what Isaiah said. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He was way out there. If he had that gate open, he's way back there. And you saw him way back there in the gate. That's what Isaiah saw. All right. And his train filled the temple. You saw the train in that, right? And I said, woe is me, for I am undone. The word means destroyed. Man, I'm knocked out here. 
And you know, he couldn't keep going until an angel came and touched him and strengthened him so he could have a conversation with God. So it's not just Peter, James, and John that are having trouble here. Isaiah was having a little trouble with this, this too. And, and I venture to guess if, he, if Jesus were suddenly to manifest himself in this room today in all his glory, if we survived the experience, we would all be on the floor with our faces down gasping for breath. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All you do is see one glimpse of God and you realize how dirty you are and how corrupt you are and how badly you need a Savior. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Daniel had the same similar experience. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision. He saw Jesus on the other side of the river. And there remained no strength in me for my comeliness, my, in, my beauty, my handsomeness was turned into corruption. I thought I was a human and I thought I looked pretty good and I thought I was doing all right until I saw him and then I realized I was rotten to the core and I retained no strength. It's a common experience for people that see, visually see Jesus Christ. And when I saw him, John writes in Revelation chapter 1 and 17, I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. Every one of these men had to be strengthened to receive the message that they were going to receive from this personage, this God that stood in front of them. So don't be surprised. Now, you know, if you think about, you know, Moses and Elijah, who would be better to represent to a Jew the Old Testament than the giver of the law and the prophets? Both halves. The only thing that's missing is the history teachers. And who needs a history teacher, really? I mean, I didn't think I needed one in high school. I kind of wish I had one now. So this is a staff meeting, and it's discussing the final year of Jesus' life on earth. And they're talking about, are they talking about what is it like to die, or how should should come to pass? Are this final instructions before he goes to Jerusalem? We don't know. We really don't. We don't even know how this operates. In truth be told, we don't know where these guys live. We don't know how he transformed. Now, I have some speculation about physics and, and vibrating, and heaven is not out there, it's here. You just can't see it, but I don't want to wax into all that weirdness. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first in the land. Peter's overwhelmed. He's, he's not really confused. Each of these guys had to be strengthened. You know, you often hear people say, uh, well, when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions for God. You know, uh, well, first of all, they don't know nothing about God, let me tell you. Job, you know, Job was like that. You remember him? He said, boy, I'll tell you, I'd love to have an audience with God. I've got about 20 questions I'd really like to ask him. And he just go, Job, if you can stand reading through the book, just goes on and on and on about what's wrong with life. And then God shows up. And he says, you know, I, I really thought there was a phrase there. We've studied this book twice in this church, Job. And I, I thought there was something in there. So I, I put my hand on my mouth and I'm going to shut up now. But that must be the Living Bible's translation of this. I, I tried to find it in the King James and I couldn't find it. And I, I was convinced it's in the Bible somewhere, but I never found it. But in Job 42.5, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seeth you, where I abhor, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Basically, as I recognize I'm a jerk, and I'm going to shut up now, you know. Well, back on the mountain, 
Where am I here? And it came to pass as they depart, we're back on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, except it's Peter, John, and James for Luke. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Moses and Elijah left. Walked off, disappeared, moved into a different uh, dimension, probably. Seems like they can come and go without a great deal of travel experience. I, I know that this whole series on ancient aliens on the History Channel is designed to teach us that we don't need a God and we don't need a Creator and we don't need a Heaven, that our life forms came from outside of our universe, which is true. But they're trying to do it without giving God any credit or glory at all. Anyway, Peter says unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for us, not knowing what he said. Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't have any idea what was going on here, but I still think there was some logic in what Peter said because think of yourself being a Jew and you're trained in all this prophecy and you know what's going to come because your teachers made you memorize a lot of this stuff and you believe the millennia is coming. And, and we're probably getting close to that period of the year called the Feast of Tabernacles. You have three, three uh, feasts in the springtime. You have one in the middle in the summertime. And you have three feasts at the end of the season. The first three feasts clearly represent the arrival of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the last three feasts clearly represent the return of Jesus Christ. And it's, it, the, the, the whole Feast of Tabernacles was where all believing Israelites go out. Usually they don't have any fields they can go in, so they go up on the roof of their homes and they build these rotten little uh, garden sheds and they live in those sheds for an entire week called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they, they, they want it so that they can see the stars through the roof so if it rains, it rains on them. And they want the wind to be able to blow through. And they want to try to duplicate the experience of the Jews traveling in the wilderness. I don't understand that because they use tents, I thought. But that's beside the point. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It's camping. It's the whole, the whole country goes out camping, looking forward to, or remembering back to the time of, of their exodus and the wilderness wanderings, but looking forward also to the millennial kingdom. So if in Peter's mind, here's Jesus with the two biggest guys in the Old Testament having a conference, he probably thinks the millennium is about to begin. And what could be more appropriate than talking about the Feast of Tabernacles? And that's probably why he brought this up. Although he's nearly in a coma at this point and probably doesn't know what he's saying. Well, he knows the Messiah has come. He just doesn't know what's going to happen after that. So, let's go on here. Where am I here? While he thus spoke, there came a cloud and overshadowed him, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. The cloud overshadowed Mount Sinai, right? And they were told if they entered the cloud, they'd be killed. There was a cloud that separated the Egyptians from the Jews. It lighted. It was actually a pillar of fire in the nighttime, and it lighted the Jews, but... It also protected them from the Israelites. There was a cloud that came into the tabernacle when they first dedicated it. And I don't know if you ever thought about it. There's a cloud that's going to receive us up into heaven. I'll show you that in just a minute. Anyway, as they entered the cloud, you know they were frightened. Now, what does the cloud represent? It, it represents the presence of God. It may represent the presence of God the Father, but I lean in the direction of saying it represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because when you think of, you know, the Spirit is pneumatos, and if, if you 
if you bring the humidity up high enough, the pneumatos turns into a cloud, and if you get it cold enough, the pneumatos turns into a brick. So I, I, I kind of see this as the Holy Spirit, but I, I'm reading into this thing as isogeting, which you don't want. You want exogeting. So we're just going to assume that the cloud represents the presence of God. And that's the safest way to look at it, I think. But out of the cloud, a voice came and said, This is my beloved son, hear you him. Is this the verse? Yeah. One day we're going to look up and there'll be a cloud. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Now John looked up in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and he saw a door open to heaven. He didn't see the cloud. And he saw, and he heard a voice, and he heard the trumpet. See, so anytime you read this, whether, whether it's Paul's writing or John's writing, or I can't tell you who else writes about it, there's always this the same pattern. There's a voice, there's a trumpet, and and there's a voice, there's a trumpet, and in, in most cases there's a cloud. With the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now I've always heard it preached that those clouds represent the millions and millions of saints returning with Jesus. And when you look up, all those white robes look like clouds. But the more I think about this, I think it probably represents the presence of God coming with Jesus Christ. It certainly makes sense. It also makes sense that when you have 17 billion people wearing white robes, it'll look like a cloud too. So I don't know really. Maybe we'll find out pretty soon. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's where we get the teaching of the rapture from. If we happen to be lucky enough to be alive when the second coming comes, we're going to be caught up. And if you translate that into Latin, it's rapero, and that means we'll be raperoed. And if you bring that into the English, it means we'll be raptured. People say, well, you know the word rapture isn't in the Bible at all. Well, it's not in the Bible at all, because the word rapture isn't a Hebrew or a Greek word. All right? But this word, translated in English, caught up, that's what the word means, is talking about that time when we're going to be lucky enough, some, some Christians are going to be lucky enough anyway, to look up, see a door, hear a trumpet, well, hear a trumpet, that makes them look up. Look up, see a door. Hear Jesus say, come up here. And boom, John said, immediately I was in the spirits of those days. We'll be in God's presence just like that. You know. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, we've, he goes on with this and you're thinking, well, one of the one of the people who die aren't they going to be part of this and part of this book Thessalonians is written for that purpose to say oh yeah 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 my mother who died in 1998 will actually precede me in the rapture that's what Paul writes the 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 resurrection of the saved will happen at the time of the rapture so uh, I'll get up the, she'll get up there like a snap of a finger and I'll get up there and she'll say well what took you so long you know, uh, you get the point. So will she ever be with the Lord? And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone and they kept it close and told no man. I'm, I'm assuming that Jesus told them to don't talk about this. Wait till I'm gone. But what have they seen? And they kept it close and told no man in those days of any of those things which they had seen. But they're, they're going to tell it later. So why would you want to follow Jesus? Why would I want to follow Jesus? And I, I bet you could make a list of 50 things. I just made four in the interest of time. Actually, time this morning. 
One reason to follow Jesus is Jesus is the eternal God and our only hope of salvation. I think that's a pretty good reason. He is the eternal God. He is the creator God of the universe. He exists in three persons, of which He is one person, distinct and different. And yet He is eternal God, God of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the sovereign of the world, even though we don't recognize Him in this country or any country. We will, believe me. The first reason to follow Him is He's God. He's the good God, not the bad God. The second reason, He knows and loves us more than we love ourselves. I thank Catherine Marshall for that teaching, and it's true. Would Peter have been happier if he kept fishing his entire life or serving God as one of the greatest apostles that ever lived? I think you know the answer to that. There's, there's no plan that God has for us that isn't greater than any plan that we have for ourselves. The third reason I wrote down here this morning was Jesus is our only path to heaven. You choose any other path, you ain't going to heaven. It's as simple as that. He's the only way. He's the only path we have to get to heaven. So if you start working for the other team, you have to understand you're going in the wrong direction. And I know I spent 25 years working for the other team. And I was going not only to self-destruction, but to eternal destruction. And the last thing is found in this passage of Luke, actually. Luke chapter 9 and verse 50, there were some guys out there teaching in Jesus' name, and He wasn't some of the guys, and the boys were upset, and they forbade Him. And Jesus said unto them, Forbid Him not, for He that is not against us is for us. There's two worlds here. You either work for Jesus or you work for Satan. There's nothing in the middle. There's no working for yourself. Self is Satan. You can see that in the lives of other people. You can't see it in your own life so well. But when you start to see the selfishness in lost people, you recognize that selfishness is more devious and more dangerous than anything you've ever experienced with Christ because it's out of the other side. You're either working for Christ or you're working for Satan. That's what Jesus said. Let's pray. Father, it's my heart's desire that everyone in this room has made this decision to receive Jesus as their Savior and that they have committed their lives to follow Him. I pray that Your will would be done in every one of our lives, that we would sense and hear Your leadership, and that we would follow it, Lord, and that the day will soon come when we look up and say, there's Jesus, and we'll be gone from here, and we'll be with Him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.